Today is week six in our present series, um, To Live is Christ. And for those who have been around, you know exactly where we're coming from. This uh, series is based on Paul's letter to the Philippians found in the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to be reading together um, from chapter 1, verse 27. So if you've got your Bibles, I do encourage you to bring your Bibles on a Sunday morning. But if you've not brought them today, we'll put the scriptures up on screen so that you can read them. Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you, uh, you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, Dan brought us a, a very challenging message uh, last Sunday, and his message was entitled, Be What You Are. Uh, based on these verses, particularly verse 27, which says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Dan talked about our need to make sure that our lives match our profession of faith, that we are God's children, that we are citizens of his kingdom, and we need to not just talk the talk, but we need to walk our talk. In other words, we need to live out our lives and that which we believe before others. And our actions, in other words, need to match our words. And after listening to Dan's talk, I was tempted today to just jump in straight to chapter 2. After all, we've already spent five weeks on chapter 1. How much more could we squeeze from this chapter? Well, the answer is just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, because I think there's another lesson here and a very important lesson uh, to be learned in these last couple of uh, verses from the chapter. I'll put them uh, in red there for you. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are now going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And when I was thinking about this verse this week, I thought, well, this, this verse seems to cut across the way that most Christians in the Western world view Christianity. You see, when Christians in the Western world speak about faith, it's very often in terms of what God has done for us, in terms of uh, the spiritual and emotional benefits that we have for being Christians, that God has given us the spiritual benefit of forgiveness of sins, of a new start, of a clean slate, of eternity. And we speak of the difference that Christ has made to our lives, that he has given us a newfound joy and a peace and a deep sense of assurance and security in him, that deep sense of well-being. And when we evangelize, we tell others, this is what Jesus has done for me, and he can do the same for you too. And I'm sure that that is wonderful and that's all right. And I'm sure that no Christian, no Christian here this morning would swap uh, what you have now in Christ for what you once had before you became a Christian. And the benefits of being a Christian are numerous. 
But sometimes, sometimes I feel that we can have a rather lopsided view of the Christian faith, where we see Christianity only in terms of how we are blessed or how we are benefited through the, the faith, without ever really acknowledging that there is also a cost to following Jesus. And if we are really honest, suffering for Christ never enters our minds, which is so, so, so different to our Christian brothers and sisters all around the world and also at other times in history. You see, for the majority of Christians, Paul's words in verse 29, where he tells them, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, are as pertinent today as when Paul wrote those words 2,000 years ago. Uh, just this week I was reading um, a monthly magazine uh, from an organisation called Barnabas Aid. And um, it's um, a Christian organisation that uh, supports the persecuted church uh, throughout the world. And there are a number of very challenging articles in this magazine as, a, as I was just reading it this week. And the one that really grabbed my attention was on a page which was just news in brief. I'm sure you can't see that on the front row, let alone the back row. Um, what happens there, they just give a quick overview of what's happening in some countries around the world to Christians. And as I read this article this week, I, I just needed to remind myself that I wasn't reading about the Roman Empire in the times of Domitian or Nero or Caligula. I wasn't reading the barbaric times of the medieval uh, times of the church, or even of the, the bloody times of the Reformation, the Counter-Reformation. But I was actually reading what is taking place in 2018. So let me give you some of the headlines. I'll put some of them on screen for you so that you can see. First of all, in Azerbaijan, Protestant church meeting raided by police. And this article tells about the members of this church who um, were then all facing a fine of the equivalent of three months' wages just for worshipping Christ. And then in Dagestan, five killed in Islamic attack on church. The story there is that um, when worshippers were coming out of a church on a Sunday morning, that they were shot by a gunman. Turkey. European Parliament highlights seizures of Christian properties and increased discrimination against Christians. Now this story was all about since 19, uh, sorry, since 2008, the Turkish authorities are not forgetting that Turkey is a country that many of you go on holiday, has seized as many as 50 properties from the Syriac Orthodox Church. Going to the other side of the world, Malaysia, Sharia courts given jurisdiction over Christian conversion which essentially means that for anyone converting from, uh, from Islam into Christianity, and if you're a man, it will be the death sentence, and for many women as well. Indonesia, pastor and three others injured in church sword attack. Germany, Hamburg supermarket knife attacker wanted to kill Christians. Kenya, Al-Shabaab slaughter Christian teachers at night attack. And this story included the story of a, a couple of newly marrieds who were killed in a primary school complex. 
when you come to Syria. Kurdish militia mark Christian properties for confiscation and abduct Christians as conscripts. Now, I'm sure you won't read about these things or watch these things on the evening news, but what I've quoted to you there in just a few items is the tip of 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 the iceberg. You see, this is just a brief news update in the May edition of one magazine by one British charity. Just a snapshot in time of the plight of Christian brothers and sisters who have, to use Paul's words, been granted not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. And in the reading this morning, Paul doesn't elaborate on how these early Christians in Philippi were going to be suffering for Christ, although he does say that they were experiencing some of the struggles that he had and now has. And begs the question, well, what were they? And if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul talks about his suffering there, actually catalogues all the sufferings that he has been through. And my, my word, they were, they were something. Five times I've received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and night in, uh, in the open sea, I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Okay, Paul, you win. <laughs> but it's interesting to note that when Paul wrote the words that we have been studying together on Sunday mornings to the Philippians, that the emperor of the Roman Empire was a man called Nero. Now, if you know anything about history, he, Nero was a, a, a bloodthirsty, deranged psychopath. Uh, how do we know that? Well, the Roman historian Tacitus, who lived uh, in the first century and he wrote towards the end of the first century AD into the second century uh, AD, he tells us that Nero dressed Christians up in goat skins and animal skins and then fed them to the wild dogs. Others were crucified and still others were set alight as they burned as torches to light up his gardens when Nero was there dressed, dressed as a charioteer on a chariot. And Tacitus, this uh, Roman historian, wrote, people began to feel sorry for them, for Christians, for they realised that they were being massacred, not for the public good, but to satisfy one man's mania. I don't know about you, but when I read such accounts as that, not only in sense of geography of what's happening around the world, but in terms of history also, these people that we are reading of are our brothers and sisters in Christ that we will spend eternity with. People who have suffered, people who are suffering because of Jesus. Now, we're not meant to feel guilty about this, but I feel another emotion altogether. I am deeply humbled. I am deeply humbled. And I thank God for them. I thank God for their witness and their dedication to Christ. I thank God that the way that they live their lives challenge my own, especially on those occasions when my faith is rather flabby and feeble. And when I'm tempted to grumble and whinge, I am reminded 
that I have nothing really to complain about. And when I come questioning God with all my doubts, their faithfulness often confronts my spiritual shabbiness and unbelief. Now, you see, the subject of uh, suffering for being a follower of Jesus, Jesus isn't hidden away in some footnote in the New Testament. But this is something that we find very often spoken about by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. And Jesus was totally upfront about those who would follow him. He told them that they would need to deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and follow him. And Jesus said such things as this in John uh, chapter 15. Jesus said, if the world, that's, that's meaning secular society, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, I think that's uh, pretty straightforward. And it's a challenge, really, to cozy, comfortable Western Christianity, which is so often drenched in sentiment but devoid of sacrifice. When Timothy writes these words, in two, uh, sorry, in Paul writes to Timothy, rather, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, uh, Paul writes to this, this young leader, and he says, all that will live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's a verse that probably most of us know. How many of us have that verse as a fridge magnet? <laughs> or maybe not as a fridge magnet, maybe as one of those lovely embroidered uh, verses that you put in a frame and put up in your, on your dining room wall. Any of you? No? Part of scripture? I haven't either. Because what we tend to do, we tend to um, put those, th those verses which speak about the mercy of God and the grace of God and, and God's compassion and God's faithfulness and God's greatness, those verses that make us feel happy and secure on a rainy day, on a grey day. Yeah, I get that and there's something lovely about that as well. But Paul here seems to suggest that if you won't, uh, that, that you won't rather have one without the other, and that living a godly life and suffering were actually two sides on the same coin. It's not easy speaking about these things, by the way. And you don't look that impressed. <laughs> you don't. But actually, as you look at this verse, all that will live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It's a thrilling verse, really. It's a, an encouraging verse. You, you don't think so, do you? It, it really is. This is incredibly good news. You may say, well, how on earth can that be good news? Well, if you live an insipid, watered-down, lukewarm, half-hearted, bland, living-to-please-yourself kind of life, you should be okay. You should be okay. You probably escape any opposition altogether. Keep a low profile. Keep your head down. You won't get shot at. You see, nominal Christianity doesn't ruffle any feathers. Nominal Christianity doesn't, doesn't upset anyone. But the trouble is, 
nominal Christianity doesn't shine forth Christ either. In Matthew chapter six, 5, 6 and 7, we have there in our Bibles what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps the Sermon on the Mount is the most popular and most often quoted but least understood passage in the Bible. And Jesus describes how Christians are to live their lives. And some people called, have called the Sermon on the Mount his kingdom manifesto. I, I like that. That's good. And this is what Jesus has to say there. <clears throat> Um, as many of you know, the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, the blessed sayings, the rate of them. And the final blessed saying or Beatitude is blessed or happy or contented are the, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy, blessed, contented are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice there that uh, when Jesus is speaking about this, he's not just speaking about physical torture, but also about slanderous accusation. And make no mistake about it, that Satan is the author of both. He is the author of slanderous accusation as well as physical torture. He is called in scripture the devil. The Greek word for devil is diabolos, which we get the English word diabolical from, which means slanderer. In scripture, he is also called the accuser of the brethren and father of lies. And as Christians, we need to make sure that we never do his work for him. Jesus continues, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. As someone once said, the fringe benefits of being a Christian are simply out of this world. <laughs> Think about that. In the same way, says Jesus, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, if you are suffering, well, you're in good company. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, in verse 10, in verse 11, because of me. That's really interesting to note what Jesus does not say here. Jesus just, he doesn't say, blessed are the persecuted, period, full stop. He doesn't say that. There's nothing blessed or happy about being persecuted. It's horrible. It's miserable. And Jesus isn't kind of promoting some kind of uh, Christian masochism here. He is not saying blessed are the persecuted. Jesus is not saying blessed are those who are persecuted because they're a pain in the neck or difficult people. And I imagine that you are already thinking of some people that you would not want to live next door to either on earth or in heaven. I hope you're not thinking of me, by the way. <laughs> Jesus does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're seriously lacking in wisdom or diplomacy. And Christians sometimes are their own worst enemies by the daftest and cringiest things that they say. And sometimes when they're talking to people without faith. How long have you got? I could keep you here all morning talking of illustrations and giving illustrations of that sort of stuff. But we need to be careful that we're not getting in the way of our own message by sometimes trite and superficial and spiritual cliches. Jesus did not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're busybodies and gossips, always poking their noses into other people's business. And did you know that many churches have their very own Mrs. Nosy Parker hyphenated? You know, the Bible gossip 
a little bit like Dot Cotton on EastEnders, who can quote chapter and verse of the scriptures, but you wouldn't want to live next door to you. So what does Jesus say here? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And the following verse, because of me. You see, Christians are not normally persecuted for being good or for being noble or for being generous or for being kind or for being big-hearted. Christians are normally patted on the back for the things that they do within the community as we are patted on the back by many in the community for food bank and prime time and winter night shelter and various other outreaches. Most people, if they're going to be persecuted, it's for being different. Jesus was different. Jesus was righteous. And there is something about the righteous that exposes darkness. And when I speak of righteous, I'm not speaking of self-righteousness. I'm not speaking of that air of moral superiority that thinks I am better than you or being holier than thou. I'm not speaking about that at all. But light always exposes darkness. And those who walk in righteousness and integrity and light will always expose darkness in this world, as Jesus did. You know, the S word, the suffering word, isn't really in the vocabulary of most Western Christians. And if we're honest, really honest, when we signed up to become a Christian, we were only told of what Jesus could do for us and nothing of what it will actually cost us to follow Jesus or might cost us to follow Jesus. And the result is that many believers in the Western world, compared to some of our friends in other countries, uh, have a rather insipid faith, a, a bland, wishy-washy adherence to Jesus, almost a take-it-or-leave-it attitude. I will follow Jesus if it suits me, if I've not got any better offers. I will follow as long as I don't need to stand out from the crowd, as long as it doesn't require any sacrifice on my part. I will follow Jesus as long as the music is good and the preacher inspires me and makes me feel good about myself and there's some good coffee. I will follow Jesus as long as I can do it on my terms and so on and so forth. I'm not sure what that is, but that most certainly is not New Testament Christianity. Hebrews 11 is one of the great chapters in the Bible and it speaks of the great superheroes of the faith, people who have accomplished great things in believing in God and, and trusting God. And towards the end of the chapter, the writer tells us of this nameless group of people who were persecuted. Verse 36, some faced jeers and flogging while others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went around in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. I love that phrase. The world was not worthy of them. Say it after me. The world was not worthy of them. A couple of verses later, speaking of these persecuted believers... The writer to Hebrews writes these words in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Now that word there, witnesses or witness, is the Greek word, the New Testament is written in Greek, is the Greek word martis. 
martis, from which we get the English word, any ideas? Martyr. Martyr. I wonder why that's so. Could it be that because many of those who were witnesses of Christ became martyrs for Christ, and in time, the words martyr and the words witness became synonymous. 40 years ago next month, on the 23rd of June, nine Elim missionaries from our own movement, serving in Zimbabwe, which was then Rhodesia, together with four young children, were martyred for their faith. And we can say that the world was not worthy of them. We're going to watch a video just for about five minutes. Uh, it was a centenary, centenary uh, video produced by Elim. And uh, for those listening on podcast, the hyperlink to this video is included in the Life Group notes. Let's just watch this. It's hard watching, isn't it? Their legacy lives on and continues to speak to us deeply and powerfully. And their lives still challenge our lives. And we can say with the writer to the Hebrews that the world was not worthy of them. And one might think of this atrocity, it would have a, a dis, it'd be a disincentive to those who are wanting to serve God in missionary service, a discouragement, a deterrent perhaps. It wasn't so at all, as we heard there from John Smith, that in five months after the murder of the Elim missionaries, there were more people applying to serve as missionaries throughout the world through Elim than in the five years previously. And that's a principle that you often see. Persecution is often followed by spiritual blessing, or it's followed by an increased dedication to mission, or even in some places of the world, it's, uh, it's followed on by revival. The Chinese church, for example, in uh, recent times is a wonderful example of that. When the communists uh, took power in China in 1949, they threw out all Western missionaries. At that time, there were an estimated 700,000 uh, Christians in China. Um, but these days, the figure is no longer 700,000. It's estimated to be 100 million believers in China. It could be higher than that. More than a hundredfold increase. And uh, during that time, uh, Chinese Christians have been tortured. Some of them renounced their faith. Some were thrown into prison or killed. And yet, in persecution, very often the church will grow like wildfire. And you're probably asking this morning, I really need to come to a, a, an end uh, of this talk in a few moments, but you're probably asking yourself, Steve, you know, okay, you've taught about this verse, you've taught on this verse this morning, but what on earth has this got to do with me? Uh, are, are you trying to make us feel guilty? Are you trying to make us feel sympathetic? What's the point of your talk? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. You see, the most obvious the most obvious challenge, and the one that I guess that most of you are anticipating at the moment, is would we be willing to suffer such persecution for Jesus? Would, if we were in the shoes of persecuted Christians, who would, stand, uh, would we stand with the courage that they show? And I think that that's the most obvious question. But it's not the question I'm going to ask this morning. And I'm not going to ask that question this morning because, in a sense... Who knows how we would react to persecution if it came our way? 
I'd like to think that I would stand firm um, under persecution. I would hope so, but I don't know. And you don't know either. None of us really knows. So by asking the question, would we, would, would we be willing to suffer persecution for Jesus is really a bit of a non-question. My question, as I conclude this uh, part this morning, is really on a different slant. And it doesn't come from some hypothetical persecution, whether it might or might not come in the future. But rather, it focuses on us today, on my life and on your lives today. And the question is this. Is it realistic that we would be prepared to suffer greatly for Jesus in the future when we are not prepared to suffer little things now? That's my question. Is it realistic to believe that we would persevere under harsh treatment in the hands of some hostile authorities when presently we cannot prioritise our lives for Jesus day by day? Is it realistic that I would stand for Christ in the face of ridicule and slander when I cannot even share my faith with my friends today? Is it realistic that I would be prepared to lose my job and career because of my faith, as Christians throughout the world do, when presently I give neither time nor talents or finances to God's work? Now, you see, these questions are not about some hypothetical situation that have to do with the future, but they have to do with our lives today and how we are living our lives as Christians in 2018. Matt Redman presents us with a challenge about crafting ourselves a more comfortable cross. And uh, I'll put these words up on screen. Show me the way of the cross once again, denying myself for the love that I've gained. Everything's you now, everything's changed. It's time you had my whole life. You can have it all. Yes, I resolve to give it all. Some things must die, some things must live. Not what can I gain, but what can I give? If much is required, when much is received, then you can have my whole life. Jesus, have it all. And then the final verse which says, I've given like a beggar but lived like a, the rich and crafted myself a more comfortable cross. Yet what I am called to is deeper than this. It's time you had my whole life. You can have it all.